1: This is episode 12 of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Knudsen, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed in work in life. I am flying solo on this one. My co host, Anthony Fizzano, is off on vacation somewhere. I think he's at the beach. And, uh, you know, I'm doing this really early in the morning because uh, I'm going to be heading off myself in a couple hours to go and uh, enjoy some time in the mountains, hiking and, and backpacking. And I'm really looking forward to that. But before I get out of here, I wanted to do this intro recording and also put together the uh, project segment of the week because um, it's all prepping up for our special guests that I've got on the show, none other than Scott Walter, who's a forensics geologist, a petrographer, which actually happens to be a word that you're going to hear me completely slaughter later on in the main segment of the interview. But he's also an entrepreneur, a business owner, author, and a TV personality. And in today's episode, we're going to get into a lot of topic areas. We touch on the work that Scott does in forensics geology, specifically on field concrete structures. So there's a lot of good information in there for takeaways that he's learned from uh, from his career in forensic geology. We're going to talk about the necessity for communications to be successful in our careers. Then we're going to get into Scott's work that propelled him to write a book and then his journey in the television as the host of the TV series America on Earth. And he's also going to share with us how to handle criticism something that Scott's not a stranger to you and has experienced quite a bit because of his work and we will hit on a whole host of other great life and career takeaways. So this episode is packed with goodness, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. But before we get into the show, if you're a regular listener to either the Civil Engineering Podcast or the other podcast that Anthony and I work on jointly, the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, then you know that we redesigned our website, the Engineering Career Coach. And one aspect of that is an Ask Us page where you can submit questions by voice or text. Anthony did a recent Engineering Career Coach podcast. You can check it out at episode 68 by uh, going to the uh, Engineering Career Coach podcast. And uh, that's where he answered a lot of questions from civil engineers, just like yourselves. And uh, it was a really good episode. We enjoy getting those questions and the feedback from all of you. Also, as a part of that redesign of the Engineering Career Coach brand was a rebranding of our membership community. Which was formerly known as the Institute for Engineering Career Development. It's now called the Engineering Career Community, the ECC. We've made a 30 day trial membership available for $1, and you can go check that out at theengineeringcareercommunity.com. Okay, well, it's time to jump into the Civil Engineering Project of the Week, and this week's project is going to be at the Pentagon, and it's got a great connection to the uh, interview that I'm going to have with Scott Walter in just a little bit.
0: Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: Okay, it's Chris, and I'm back now with the Civil Engineering Project of the Week segment of the show. This is where we discuss an interesting civil engineering project, either past, present, or future, and you can submit your projects at the Podcast.com by clicking the red Submit Your Project button. If you hear some information that you want to look at more closely in the project description that I'm going to run through in the show notes segment on the uh, website, you can go and look at all the different uh, web links that I use for for reference here, and I'm also going to share with you some of the photos that came off of them. And there's actually one that was pretty uh, enjoyable to go through. It was an old Popular Mechanics uh, magazine from 1943, so that was a great, uh, great reference. Although I've been in this building, the Pentagon, several times over my career, I had never done any time studying it really to really understand all the different aspects that we, especially went into the construction. So this was an enjoyable one for me to put together and connect the dots on uh, on a lot of what I saw. So again, you can go to Podcast.com episode 12, and those show notes will have all the information that I'm going to talk about today. So the project is the Pentagon, which is located in Washington, D.C., and it's the headquarters of the United States Department of Defense, and it's actually located in Arlington County, Virginia, not Washington, D.C., which maybe a lot of people might think, and that symbol of the Pentagon is, is really oftentimes completely 100% associated with the Department of Defense. And it was designed by American architect George Bergstrom and built by the general contractor of John McShane out of Philadelphia. And ground was broken for construction on September 11, 1941. And you can see some significance uh, in that date later on in its history. Uh, and the building was dedicated on January 15, 1943. It's a large office building with about 600,000 square meters of, of space. About 340,000 square meters are used as offices. And what I find amazing is that from groundbreaking into ribbon cutting, it was 16 months. That's it, 16 months. And that was at the front end of the the, uh, U.S.'s entry into World War II. So an overall ramping up of industrial output and construction across the nation is, is obvious from that. So there's few buildings in our modern world that have as much presence, interest, and focus attached to them as the Pentagon. And even back in 1943, the building captured the imagination of the people because of its massive size and sheer spread and speed by which it was erected. It was, after all, the largest building on the planet when it was completed in 1943. And the building had plenty of humorous stories during construction, including one about a new worker who spent three weeks wandering around the 400-acre construction site looking for his foreman. And there were, after all, 13,000 workers involved on this project. Or there was also another funny story about a Western Union messenger who got lost in the building, and three days later came out of Lieutenant Corner. I'm lieutenant colonel. I mean, after all, it was wartime, so it's probably, uh, probably true. probably is exactly what happened. So most people have seen the building of photos. It's an icon in and of itself, but uh, not as many have probably had the chance in person, let alone to walk its halls, and, and I have, and it's really, truly a massive building. Each of the five sides is 920 feet in length, which is more than the length of a Capitol building. In other words, you could put five replicas of the Capitol on the Pentagon site. And there's three football fields could be placed inside the central courtyard. It boasts over 17 miles of corridors along its five rings. And the building's not just one cohesive structure from the outside of the inner facade. It's actually five concentric rings or five concentric buildings that are each connected by 10 cross-connecting radial hallways. And each of those rings, which is named simply A, B, C, D, and E, purely to help the people who are in there so they can figure out where they've got to go when they are actually in the building. So the project was originally budgeted at $35 million, but ended up costing nearly $70 million. And No doubt that came from the change orders that, that resulted because of the speed of construction and the construction was actually oftentimes ahead of the actual design themselves. So we're talking really probably one of the largest design build projects that, uh, that's been undertaken or had been undertaken to that point in history. Some other unique facts about the iconic building include that among the design requirements, the government required the structural design to accommodate floor loads of up to 150 pounds per square foot, which was done in case the building became nothing more than a record storage facility after the end of the war. And a minimal amount of steel was used as it was in short supply during World War II. So instead, the Pentagon was built as a reinforced concrete structure using 680,000 tons of sand dredged from the Potomac River and a lagoon that was created beneath the Pentagon's river entrance. And to minimize steel speed construction and not obstruct the views from Virginia and the Capitol area, they used concrete ramps inside rather than installing elevators, which I I always wondered why there were no elevators, and that's why. I mean, there are some now today uh, to accommodate uh, ADA considerations, but uh, by and large, for the majority of the the people who work in that building, uh, they're not using elevators. They're going uh, up and down between floors on these ramps or through staircases, and in many cases now they, they use escalators. So Indiana limestone was used for the building's facade, which I think is a you know, kind of a unique facade frontage in comparison to a lot of the other buildings in the, in the D.C. area. And again, as I mentioned, during construction, up to 13,000 workers were employed, just an absolutely enormous project. The architectural and structural design work for the Pentagon proceeded simultaneously with construction, making it, as I already mentioned, a, just a massive design build effort. And the initial drawings were provided early in October 1941, and most of the design work was actually completed in June of 1942, but as I've already mentioned, you know, work started on this project in in September of 1941. So at times, construction got way ahead of design. Different materials were used actually in construction that were ultimately specified in the plans, and the pressure to speed up the design and construction intensified, as you would have imagined, after the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. With the government demanding that that a million square feet of that facility, so really roughly a sixth of it, would be available for occupation in April of 1942, so only seven months after the project kicked off. So we're talking generation of almost a million square feet, and, and I've been involved with providing quick facilities before in my life, but they're always what we call porta cabins, these little essentially metal trailers or metal boxes to get square footage. So the thought of building a reinforced concrete building with the size of the Pentagon. And producing a million square feet of that in seven months is pretty uh, daunting. So the Pentagon shape, uh, which is pretty, pretty iconic, as we know, was really dictated by economic and functional factors. Economically, a circular structure would have driven costs and time to construct up significantly. So the Pentagon shape permitted rectangular construction of the sections. And a single long building wasn't feasible as the offices at the opposite ends would have been almost a mile apart. As it is, no two offices are more than one half mile apart on the same floor. And besides the speed and sheer size of the project, other unique challenges and aspects of more than 5 million cubic yards of earth removed, which is still a pretty impressive number. And that's one of a quarter times the volume of the Dallas Cowboy Football Stadium, a mega project in itself. And to build on-site chosen, they had to remove a brick factory and a slum. And there was this lagoon that was constructed and numerous bridges and over 40 miles of roadways as well as parking for 8,000 cars to support what was planned as a working population of 40,000 people in the building. So based on how much premium is placed on parking, depending on today, not much has changed with uh, only 8,000 parking spots and 40,000 people working there. So obviously public transit is and was a, uh, a big component of how to get people to and from this massive office building. More recently, we know that uh, you know on 11, 11 September 2001, the terrorists attacked the Pentagon um, 58 years to the date after it was opened, uh, when an airliner exploded against the E-ring of the Pentagon and 189 people, uh, both military and civilian, were killed. And uh, as a tribute to the victims and in defiance of the terrorists, construction crews that were engaged in a nearly 24-hour period uh, afterwards to rebuild and repair the extensive damage You're going to hear in today's episode from Scott about a lot of the work that his company did in the aftermath of 9-11, helping the uh, engineers and the project managers determine uh, which of the structural members uh, that were affected on that side of the E-ring would be replaced or would remain by the forensics work that they did on the uh, the concrete. So it's pretty impressive. It was a a very long and uh, engaged effort that his, he and his team provided. He, he touches on that during today's interview, so very very fascinating. The post-9-11 rework was done simultaneously as a massive 17-year-long, $4.5 billion renovation project was underway, and that focused on structural hardening and other structural strengthening enhancements. And it was really because a lot of this is structural enhancements, the death toll wasn't greater in the section of the building, which was struck by the airliner. And the renovation project officially was completed in 2011. So remember, it took 14 months to build the building, but 17 years to renovate it. However, instead of an open construction zone, which is what they had at the beginning, uh, the renovation project was essentially a complete retrofit, almost a complete restructuring building of this, const- of this facility taking place while 20,000 people were actually sitting in it. So that's a pretty impressive in and of itself. Well, that concludes our Civil Engineering Project of the Week segment for today's episode. Again, you can check out all the show notes. Uh, Check out the reference links on the show notes. And you're going to want to go to civilengineeringpodcast.com and look for episode number 12. And I'll just, again, remind you, if you're working on a project that you would like to have us feature on a future episode of the show, please drop uh, Anthony and I a line. You can do that off the civilengineeringpodcast.com website, and we look forward to it. So let's get into the main segment of today's episode.
0: Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Well, now it's time for this week's
1: Civil Engineering Conversation. And this is where we talk with a civil engineering professional or project professional or other professional who has had success in their field or is striving towards a specific goal and needs some advice and encouragement. And that's the case for our guest today. He doesn't need any encouragement because he's out there mixing it up and he's doing some great Great work, and many of you may have come across him and the television, and our guest is none other than Scott Wolter. Now, Scott is a forensic geologist. He's an author and the host of History's H2 Network's show, America on Earth, that follows him on his quest to uncover the truth behind historic artifacts and sites found throughout North America, and he's also just finished filming for a new show, but I'm going to let him tell us a little bit more about that a little bit later once we get into the Q&A portion of this section. Scott's also the author of several books, including the 2013 title, Akentaten to the Founding Fathers, The Mysteries of the Hooked X, and The Hooked X, Key to the Secret History of North America. And we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. Well, Scott graduated with a bachelor's degree in geology and earth sciences from the University of Minnesota Duluth in 1982. And professionally, as a forensic geologist, he has worked as a petrographer, since 1985, and in 1990, he founded the American Petrographic Services and continues to serve as president of that company, and he has been the principal petrographer in more than 7,000 material forensic investigations throughout the world, including the evaluation of the fire-damaged concrete from the Pentagon following the attacks of September 11th, 2001, and you learned a little bit more about the Pentagon project in the project segment of today's episode. So, Scott, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Christian. Um, I, uh, I'm looking forward to to talking with you. This is a little different slant than many of the interviews that I do. It's uh, this is a little more on the professional aspect of some of the things we do. So I, I'm happy to to do this interview. Thank you.
1: We're uh, we're happy to have you on the show. You know, as we were talking in some of the pre conversation here, getting ready for for the recording today. You know, we covered the fact that you know we really we talked to a lot of a lot of engineers. But as I knew what you're involved with, really on the uh, American Petrographic Services side, your professional side, um, I thought this would be just great to get you on and 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 share what you're doing both in the uh, with with your company and with the TV work that you do and share that with everyone. So so that's awesome. So I think I'm going to start with the with a first basic question: What's a petrographer?
2: <laughs> petrographer.
1: Petrographer. Look, check that out. I can't even pronounce it correctly. Well, that's all
2: right. <laughs> if I had a dollar for everybody who uh, stumbled on that one, I'd, I could buy uh, anything I want. A petrographer is its a person that does microscopic analysis on rock. In our case, we look at inorganic materials like concrete, mortar, grout, and rock. But it's a person who spends most of their time uh, with a geological background looking through a microscope at those materials.
1: And the work that you do, I know that you're involved a lot in the, again, like I just mentioned here, a lot of the uh, material forensics investigations, Right. you know, you have a chance to be, you know, on this, on this podcast, you're talking to a lot of civil engineers that are out there. So needless to say, a lot of us through our professional work are dealing with, with materials. I'd be curious to find if, you know, have you, what types of lessons learned have you developed throughout your years of working in these forensics investigations when it comes to specifically to concrete?
2: Well, I guess the lessons learned are, well, Well, let me back up and say that, you know, in, in the forensic field, people generally don't send me concrete that's doing well. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, 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 You know, I, rarely do I get a chance to say this concrete is great. Everything about it is good. It's going to serve its purpose for a long time. And And everything's nice, and that's not the way it works. Something's not going right, and they want to know first of all what caused the particular issue—whether it's low strength, whether it's cracking, whether the top peeled off, scaled, delaminated. Sometimes there's a catastrophic failure, uh, fire damage. Obviously, the Pentagon was was the most notable example of that. But there's something that's not going right, and they want to know first of all what happened. And secondly, whose fault is it?
1: <laughs> yeah, no
2: doubt. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that's really what happens. So, you know, what I say to people all the time is, uh, because a lot of times I'll get calls from people who are are, are really upset, you know, a, a contractor that, you know, placed some concrete and they've got a serious problem and they want to know what happened. And oftentimes I have to give them bad news. Yeah. And, and it's nobody likes to, to get or give bad news, but it's part of the job. And so the nice thing about it is that when we do this work, I, I tell them, I said, I say, look, the concrete didn't crack or experience these problems just to make you mad. It's doing it for a reason. So you take out the emotional component you, you just get down to let's take a look at this. And if we do the job correctly and we follow the facts, it will take us to the answer and it always does. So there's a reason why these things crack and why they, they fail. And so once we, we do that, we document everything properly, we'll figure it out, and then we tell them the answer. And once they know the answer, now you know what you need to do, whether it's replace it or fix it or write a check. At least you know what happened, why it happened, and then you can move forward.
1: What are some of the typical issues, or maybe if is there anything that's kind of a Most of the samples that you get in, most of the issues that you're getting called out on, is there something that's typical that you see just popping up over and over again?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, in the springtime, we get a huge influx of samples from concrete that's scaling the exterior concrete, whether it's a sidewalk, pavement, uh, driveways. And I would say that's probably the number one thing we look at is concrete, that the, the surface is deteriorating. And uh, we just look at thousands of them, I mean, uh, all, all every year. But those are basically a function of too much water in the concrete. They didn't put the proper air entrainment in the original mix, which would be a supplier issue. But more often than not, we're looking at concrete that just wasn't placed properly and finished properly and cured properly. And, you know, you really have to take care of the surface of that concrete in exterior applications because... If you don't, you're going to lose it. And placing concrete is not an easy business. And weather is a huge factor. And it's different every day. And sometimes I think contractors forget about that. The other thing that I think we see an awful lot of is a lack of communication between the supplier and the contractors that are placing that concrete. Sometimes they think they're getting one mix and they're getting something else. And there really has to be communication. And if you're a supplier, you better know where that concrete you're batching is going. And if it's going to a, a residential driveway or a sidewalk, sometimes you don't get the call for the proper mix. And if it's not air and trained, you better not send it out. Yeah. So I think one of the areas that we can improve in our industry and not just in exterior applications in all applications making sure that there's good communication between the supplier and the contractor
1: that's a great point scott and something that comes up you know, really over and over again a lot of the a uh, lot of the discussions that i have is the importance of communications and uh in the fact that sometimes you can really never have enough of it one of the things i guess i want to just highlight here for you know for the engineers that are listening is the importance of understanding that just because you made the perfect design doesn't mean that the perfect design is going to come out basically is going to survive first contact with reality once it gets constructed and and, and Scott I think what you just shared with us is a you know it's kind of a very a salient point that even though there may be a good design on the front end of it once it gets into the uh, hands of the suppliers and the contractors and the environment all bets potentially could be off so
2: I mean, the best laid plans, as you know, don't always go <laughs> according to the engineer's design and specifications. And I think, you know, the engineer needs needs to be mindful of that. And I think people in general and engineers are no different. You know, when you design something and you put your time and effort into it, you, there's some personal equity in that. And you want to make sure that what your vision is, is completed to the as close as it can to what you wanted it to be. And I I think one of the ways that you can do that, you you know, you can't control everything, but it's to stay involved throughout that process and just make sure. I think sometimes just letting contractors, suppliers, people know that you're still engaged in this thing. I think it it just increases the odds that you're going to get what you hope for. You just don't want to walk away from it and just say, well, I've done my job. If there's any way that you can stay connected somehow, I just think that that helps.
1: No, I think that's a that's an absolutely great point, and one of the other benefits that comes out of that, especially for younger engineers, is that you really get a chance to, to feel completion that you've created something. Yeah. But equally important is you also increase your experience and your understanding of how things go together. Absolutely, just a huge, huge point. And I appreciate that. So you know, you, you mentioned and I mentioned this in the bio in your bio when I was reading that is was your work with the uh in the aftermath of the uh nine eleven attacks at the Pentagon. Right. Yep. Would you mind sharing a little bit about, about that project, how you got involved with that one and, and some of the work that you did with regards to that project?
2: Sure. Well I've been very fortunate in my life. I've I've had a chance to do some some really wonderful things but I think when the day comes and they're <laughs> they're reading my uh my eulogy I think the 911 experience we had will probably be at the top of the list and I'm happy with that it was an honor and a privilege to be involved in that you're old enough to remember there's a lot of people listening I'm sure that remember that day and how frustrating it was and one of the things that we all felt in our lab was and I think everybody felt you wanted to do something and there was this helpless feeling of of not being able to do anything during this horrible time. And for us to have been able to be involved, that was really a, a great thing. But the way it happened is I was called about, oh, I guess it was 11 days after the attack by one of the engineers that was on site who said, you've been assigned to the Pentagon, which was a different experience. I mean, you know, in the in the, in the the real world, you're out hustling work all the time. And, and to have it Fall in your lap really uh, was, was a different thing. I had never been assigned to a project before, <laughs> but I like to think it had something to do with, you know, the fact that we had been doing good work up to that point and, and that was passed along. But anyway, you know, one of the memories I'll always have of that experience, and and just so you know, what, what we were hired to do was to evaluate all the structural columns and beams In the area of the wedge one of the five wedges of the building that had been impacted by the jet fuel fire, mainly on floors one and two. And what they wanted us to do was to evaluate whether or not certain temperatures had been reached at the level of the reinforcing steel. And there was about two inch cover on this structural members, steel reinforced concrete uh, beams and columns. And if a certain temperature had been reached, at that level of the steel, it loses its yield and it's it's got to come out. So the original plan was for a surgical repair based on our analysis of almost 200 structural members, samples from these structural members. And the idea was, you know, this one's okay. This one needs some repair. This one has to be replaced. And in the end, there was enough damage, the, damage, uh, the heat damage was worse than anybody really thought. And they just decided at at a certain point, we're just going to have to tear this out and replace it. So that's really, in the end, what our work resulted in. But I remember receiving the call at about uh, 4.30 in the afternoon. And I remember going home and telling Janet, you know, I was excited. I mean, this is this is a big project in many ways. And so I was excited and I got up early the next day and I got into my office around, uh, I don't know, seven o'clock, 6.30. I, I live about 45 minutes away from, from the office. So uh, I was excited to get in there. And I remember as I walked down the hall to my office, I could smell jet fuel before I even got into my office. And when I got in there, there was a package on my chair and it was the first samples. Wow! And I remember going, "How the hell did this get here so fast?" And I remember I went over to the drilling department, and I asked the guys because they get in about six in the morning. And I said, "Do you guys see a delivery truck come in?" And they said, "No, they didn't." So I still to this day don't know how those samples got into my office.
1: <laughs> wow! It's uh, well, it was you were working with the work with the Department of Defense, so no doubt that yeah. they uh, they were they wanted to get that moving along. I just decided
2: um, I wasn't going to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> but that was weird, and and so it was uh, three and a half months of very intense. You know, we worked on the weekends, and it was a different vibe in the lab. I mean, I remember I walked in and I told everybody, I just said, "It's you know, we're going to have to buckle down here." And uh, I didn't have that. I didn't have to say anything else. People just you know,
1: it was on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it was obviously just a, definitely a different time. I mean, I, I remember, and just like you mentioned, anybody who was, you know, anybody who can remember that period of time knows exactly where they were. For myself, yep. I, I happened to be, I happened to be in Germany. I'm in Germany right now. I happen to be in yep. Germany at that time. I remember specifically everything that happened um, that day down to who I was talking with, where I was at when it, you know, when everything happened. So, Right, uh, no doubt that it becomes a a peak, you know, definitely a a peak moment in in our professional careers. I appreciate you sharing that with us. So I want to start to to move now from from the work that you, that you've done through forensic uh, geography or geology and uh, and move into this other career that <laughs> that you happen to have going on because I think you know not only not only is it interesting the career, and I'm going to let you talk a little bit about that kind of set the stage here uh, for the listeners. But um, I want to ask you some questions about the time management aspects of this, because you've got a full, you're a business owner, you've got a full up business. Like you said, you're out there hustling to, you know, to develop business and and to keep the pipeline full. But at the same time, you're, you're a TV personality. So first off, you know, Scott, share with us, how did this all come about for you to make this (laughs) shift from being this, this, this professional (laughs) into the, into the TV realm?
2: Well, it all started in uh, July of 2000 when an artifact was brought into the lab. We were we were uh, some people were looking for somebody who could examine this very famous and mysterious historical artifact that was found in Minnesota called the Kensington Runestone. And people who had been wanting to I guess elevate the level of investigation, scientific investigation into the artifact and they contacted the university up at UMD where I went to college. And my retired professors, uh, they basically said, call Scott Walters." So, so anyway, they contacted me. And at the time, I'd never heard of this thing. I didn't know anything about it. It was interesting, but I've had a lot, a lot of strange and interesting projects over the years. And I really didn't think that much about it. And in essence, what they wanted us to do was to try to tell them something about the age of the weathering of the inscription that was carved on the stone. And the inscription is carved in, in old Swedish runes. And it it's a land claim. It's one of the things that we eventually determined. But it's dated 1362, which is 130 years before Columbus. And that's in the middle of Minnesota is where it was discovered. So, you know, it's uh, you know, at the time, I, di- I I didn't know about any of this. I didn't really care but the, the historical ramifications of this thing, if it were genuine, are not small. <laughs>
1: yeah, no doubt, no doubt.
2: So anyway, I, all this stuff came later. But at the time, you know, I, I did my work and I ended up documenting the mineralogy and focusing on a couple of key minerals and um, compared the weathering with tombstones. And I concluded that it was old because in the end, the key question was, it's either a late 19th century hoax likely perpetrated by the guy who found it or it's not <laughs> and if it's not then it must be genuine i mean really those are the only two things that you have and if the weathering is old then it must be genuine which turned out to be the case and I, in fact i was able to quantify the weathering with reasonable certainty that it was older than 200 years and it had to do with the fact that the the key mineral uh, biotite that i looked at on the tombstones started to come off due to mechanical weathering, freeze-thaw, wetting, and drying at about 200 years. And, you know, one of the things I think people don't understand about the work that we do, including including engineering, is that it's all based on logic. You know, if this, then that. And, you know, if this, then this. these things must be so. And it was probably the, the most valuable class I think that I ever had. And I use it all the time in my work and and try to take the emotional part out of it. Because let's face it, even in our world, you're dealing with human beings and you have to consider that piece of the work that you do. Unfortunately, engineers tend to be less emotional than some of the other customers I deal with. So it makes it easier, but it's certainly a, a, a piece of the equation. So anytime you can distill it down to logic, I think you're better off. Anyway, I concluded that it couldn't be it was impossible that it was a late 19th century hoax and that it was in fact genuine. Wow. Boy, did that start yeah. a yeah. ball rolling I never expected.
1: <laughs> yeah, no doubt. That's uh, some pretty that's some pretty uh, massive massive impact.
2: It, it really was, but at the time I didn't think about it like that. I was just trying to do my job and and I was asked to give a presentation at at a conference. Midwest Plains Archaeological Conference, and and I just presented our findings. And I, I thought to myself, well, they got one. Good for them. You know, they can have fun with this. And I was ready to move on. And, you know, there were many people that got all excited. And then there were a lot of people that said, well, it's a hoax, don't you know? And I said, well, no, it's not. Didn't you hear what I just said? And it's like it bounced off their forehead. And then I started receiving criticism, personal attacks, and it got pretty nasty. And this was not from people in the engineering world, in the geological world. They accepted my findings. This was from people from uh, disciplines outside of, I guess what I would say, the hard scientific world. Mm -hmm. I didn't take too kindly to it. So I pushed back. And anyway, I asked a simple question. I said, I appreciate your opinion. What evidence do you have to support it? Because in our world, sometimes uh, people have questions and they want to make, and and the questions are simply requests for more information. If an engineer has a problem on a job, they they ask, you know, or with a finding that we have, they ask questions, which is perfectly appropriate. And I explain and, and eventually we, they understand, but this was not that type of an exchange. And so it was really puzzling, but in the end, it drove me to do more work. And so that led to five trips to Sweden (laughs) to chase down the linguistic aspects, the runes, the dialect, the grammar, the dating, the language, everything. And I worked with a couple of linguists. In fact, one of the top runologists in the world. And we found everything because I told them, I said, look, I stand behind the geology. If the geology says that it's old and therefore it must be genuine, then logic demands that all these things... That the linguists in the past said didn't exist have to exist. But if you if you claim something is a hoax, everything stops. The foundation of this for me was in the geology. I knew the geology was right, therefore everything had to exist. But if you don't look, you're never going to find anything. So we went, we looked and we found everything. And of course, you'd think that they would be happy and excited, but all it did was pardon my language, pissed them off.
0: <laughs>
2: because here I was, uh, somebody who was not in their field, finding the things that they didn't bother to look for. It was all driven by logic. The science told me it had to be there. And we just had to go look and we, we found it. So that led to uh, a book that I published in 2005 called The Kensington Runestone: Compelling New Evidence. And it's a 600 page book that goes into every aspect of the stone because that old phrase extraordinary claims demand extraordinary proof we knew that and we got it all everything i mean it's you just go through it and it's all there every question every rabbit hole that has ever been created with the kensington runestone we investigated and we got to the bottom of it wow. and i can tell you this christian just about anything and everything you've ever heard for the last 117 years about the runestone is wrong. <laughs> it's just flat out wrong. You know, these myths that are created, the guy who discovered it was a stonemason. Well, no, he wasn't. I went to his homeland. I'm the first investigator ever in the history of the stone to go to his homeland to Forsadalen Parish in northern Sweden, and I found out that he was a carpenter that's just one example. It just goes on and on and on. Well, you know this was was a pretty big thing, and so there were some local media here that wanted to talk to us about the stone. One of the people who interviewed me was a reporter whose husband was founding a production company called Committee Films. And after she interviewed me about the Pentagon, she walked into my office and saw a poster about the runestone and said, "Hey, have you done some work on the runestone?" Because it's pretty, pretty well known in our neighborhood here in Minnesota. And I said, <laughs> sit down, I've got a story for you. <laughs> she, went, she went back to her husband and said, I think you need to interview this guy. He's got an amazing story. And that led to a documentary called Holy Grail in America that premiered on History Channel, I think in 2008. And it ended up being the most uh, successful documentary history had ever done at that point and so they came back and said can we do another one and we said sure there's plenty in this arena and then there was another documentary called who really discovered america that did well then they came back to me in 2011 and said do you think we could put together a series and i said my god this stuff is endless (laughs) america on earth
1: uh, which which, by the way, we enjoyed watching very much for for and we'll include we'll include links to all this um in the show notes so that people can go out there if they've not uh, actually seen this, but I know my family greatly enjoyed that series and uh and are looking forward to the next one that you got coming out as well so right wow what a what a story, and <laughs> you know I think some of the you know a couple of the key takeaways that I took out of out of it were you know that. First off, and this is something that I think I can maybe even attribute back to my mother telling me this, but yeah, but you don't don't always accept everything that you hear at face value, All right? You know, there's that there's always and typically is more to the story than what you, you know, what's led to believe. And I think as engineers, um, because we do have that ability to be able to problem solve and to yep. and to apply scientific method and other processes and procedures, if something just doesn't seem to fit right. It really falls to, to you know to us professionally to be able to disassemble that, take it apart, and make sure that we've got our facts checked. And then you know the other piece, and this is something that I would be interesting to hear, was you know how do you handle personal attacks
2: and professional
1: yeah. attacks? You know how did you handle that?
2: Well, all you have to do is Google my name, and you'll see that there's people out there taking shots at us, and and it gets pretty nasty. You know, I, I always go back and you know. I went to I went to college on a, a football scholarship and I played four years of college. I played four years of minor league football and uh, I played linebacker. So, you know, people taking shots at me is, you know, physical shots, personal. I mean, you know, I, I you know, they, they there's talk going on all the time in the games and it's, I don't take any of it seriously. And quite frankly, the personal attacks in this arena, it's similar, but it's not the same but i always I always just go back and I think about football and and I you know people that just aren't good enough, they have to resort to to playing dirty and and talking trash because they just can't beat you physically and and really, that's kind of what's going on here. And I just say, you know really the the attacks are just awkward requests for more information, really. <laughs> that's the way I look at it because at the end of the day, I can say, okay, well when you're you know, when you're done calling me names and complaining and criticizing, do you want to talk about the facts or do you want to mess around some more? Let me know when you want to get serious and we'll talk. Okay. And that's the way I treat it. So my foundation is in the science. The rocks don't care. They don't have good days. They don't have bad days. I can trust the rocks. I can trust the science. And, you know, it's the other thing that will make perfect sense to you in this arena as well. And, and let me just back up and say, I don't mean to, to be critical, but the fact of the matter is the people that are complaining, the people that have really got us into this mess in the first place, are people in disciplines that are not hard science disciplines. I'm talking about archaeology, history, language, anthropology, and while I, I don't mean to criticize these disciplines they don't receive formal training in the scientific method like engineers and geologists do. And quite frankly, it shows. And, you know, people are going to say, well, Joy, that, you know, that's, that's a pretty tough thing to say. Well, what do you want me to say? You know, I try to be uh, sensitive to people's feelings as much as I can, but if you want the truth, here it is. Yeah. Now I can show you. (laughs) And, and so you know, let's let's not get into this game where we're calling e- you know criticizing each other. I want to work together with these people because they have information that I can learn from, and you know the reverse is true as well. So, but but if we're going to get into this name calling and 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 criticizing, then it, here it comes. So now that it's on the table, we we we've said all that. All right, let's move on. Let's let's solve the problem because in the end. There is so much amazing things to learn here. we're not going to get there by criticizing each other. We have to figure out a way to work together and in the end, Christian, that's what I want to do
1: definitely and I think you know scott from from what you just shared, I think it's you know some of the some of the components out of this that engineers can walk away with is you know oftentimes in the projects that we get involved with, we're working with other people of disciplines that don't have that that technical or that scientific background and understanding so so there's obviously there's going to be challenges in communications back and forth. And, and as you probably know, and this is something that, you know, that we touch on a lot in the work that we do at the engineering career coach is the engineers oftentimes are viewed as, as lacking good communication skills in the, well, yeah. you know, so you almost have, you know, fuel, air, and, and, uh, in a flame source here altogether, because you've got on the one hand, people who don't really have a good understanding of the, Logic and and maybe logic processes and scientific method. And then on the other hand, you got people maybe that have some, you know, that lack some of the more uh, soft skills, if you will. So there's definitely an opportunity in a lot of these situations for people to be able to work together to try to solve it. And the challenge, obviously, can sometimes be in getting everybody to break bread and sit down.
2: I think at the end of the day, if somebody asks me, what do you think is the root cause of the issues that you run into? when you are investigating these historical mysteries and and in in everyday life and and in my professional world. And I would have to say that the root problem is not necessarily bad science or things like that that are easily correctable. It's what I guess I would call problems of the human condition. It, It encompasses a bunch of things. But at the end of the day, it's how people communicate with each other. And how these these personal things that get in the way that really shouldn't impact certain aspects of our lives, but do. It's just people have to find a way to communicate with each other better. And the reality is, is these problems of the human condition impact our lives more than they should. But that's the way the world works. And so I'm, I'm quick to criticize some of these people on the other side. But as you pointed out. We have to look in the mirror as technical people and realize we can do all this great engineering work and and math and science and all the stuff that we do well, but we also have to work on our ability to communicate. And if we don't do that, we're missing out on a huge piece of our ability to do our jobs well. I guess that's the way I would say it.
1: Yeah, no, that's money in the bank right there. That's a great way to say that. So you've got another project in the in the works. In fact, I think we were talking in the, in the pre-work here, you just, uh, just came back off of, uh, off of the final shoot. So can you, can you give us a little bit of a peek under the tent about this next one?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, let, me, let me just say that, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting time in the television, cable television world. America on Earth um, was uh, an H2 channel program, and H2 is sort of the little sister of, of History Channel. H2 is going away because uh, cable television ratings are down significantly as much as 40% overall. And the reason is because people don't want to wait till eight o'clock on a Saturday night to watch our show. And, wow. and they, they don't want to watch commercials. And the young people especially like to binge watch, you know, two, three, four, five episodes in a row. And quite frankly, I don't blame them. I mean, you know, in this world of, of uh, instant communication with cell phones and computers. And look, I, I Saturday night, I'm busy. I want to go out with my family. And, and so that's changing. But the good news is, is the, the demand for content is higher than it's ever been. So it's not that, you know, programming is going away. It's how it's going to be delivered moving forward. And let's face it, people are going to demand they want to watch their shows when they want to watch it, but it costs money. So if they oh, yeah. don't want to watch commercials, they're going to have to pay for it. So what, what's happened here is H two is going away, and America on Earth was the number one show. And our last two episodes in our third season, the last two episodes we made, were the highest rated we ever had. So if if America on Earth doesn't come back, you know, I guess we finished uh, about as good as we can. But it's not. It, but it hasn't been canceled. That's so good.
1: Good. I don't
2: I don't know what they're gonna do with it. Believe me, there's plenty more we can do. And we had another season all teed up, but history right now is trying to figure out what they're gonna do because programs like Pawn Stars and you know, Duck Dynasty, I think are starting to run their course. So it's you know, what's gonna be the next thing? And so that remains to be seen. I know that there are some projects that we are we have done some pitch reels for that we're hoping to see uh, get picked up. And I think there's a good chance that they might. About six months ago, right as we finished filming uh, our last season of America on Earth, I was asked to be involved in a show about pirates, Freemasons, and Templars. Awesome. <laughs> which, is, which is right <laughs> in my wheelhouse. And I can't say much more about it other than we we wrapped last week, at least my part. and. It's going to be really good. <laughs> so well, it's,
1: it's got Templars, Pirates, and Masons. What more could you ask for?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's got everything I like. And quite frankly, it went way better than I could have ever imagined. It's going to be really good. And we're hoping that it's going to air, I think, in the latter part of August. And once I can say more about it, I will.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that we uh, this episode will air uh, before the end of August, definitely before the end of August, but we'll make sure that we uh, share with all the listeners the uh, the link to the uh, to the uh, show once uh, once we're able to put more information out there about it well, that's awesome I'm yeah and to it. and
2: I think um you know one of the things that has come out of this show, and I, I want to be careful what I say, but we made some discoveries that absolutely change the narrative about what we know about Freemasonry and what we know about Templars, the Knights Templar. I'm just going to leave it at that, but um, this isn't anything that's going to necessarily be controversial. It's just fact, but it does dovetail into some of the controversial aspects of some of the research we've done in this arena. But it brings in new facts, new information that, quite frankly, supports the work we've already done that got us into trouble (laughs) But it is what it is. You know that. Engineers know that. And we're going to let the evidence drive the bus and uh, we'll see where it leads. But you know, in your field uh, of study, as I do, you follow the evidence. It will take you to the truth. It will take you to the answer. So follow the facts and you'll get there.
1: That's awesome. Well, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to that. So let me Ask this question because it's this is you know one of the ones that just pop into my mind as I'm looking at this. You know, one of the one of the other things that we talk a lot about at the engineering career coach is time management and time leadership and and different rituals, different routines, different processes that a person can take to try to be able to really get you know get their life in balance between the work and the family aspects and so on and so forth. And in your particular case. You know, I look at it from the outside. and I go, Scott's juggling like two different careers here. You're a business owner, you're a TV personality, you've got a family. How are you able to make all that work?
2: <laughs> well, I think it starts with the fact that I was born AD triple HD. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I have to have a lot of balls, you know, juggling in the air for me to be happy. And and I'm I'm serious when I say that. You know, you you hear about people you know with ADD like that's some kind of horrible thing and quite frankly I think if you figure out a way to manage that condition if you will you can be more productive you know I'm, I'm 56 years old I think I'm finally figured out how to manage those balls but you know to be honest with you um, one of the key things in my life that helps me keep things under control or, or as you said in balance is my wife Janet who is opposite of me? She's very calm, very grounded, a heck of a lot smarter than me. But she's she's that ying to my yang, and we work very closely together with our research. We work very closely together in our family life with our kids and with our our, our marriage. And so, without her, um, I don't know what i do. But but really, she plays a, a bigger role in all of this than I think people realize. So that's that's a big part of it. And, and and so that's a huge thing. The other thing is, is that my my partners at work, when I decided I wanted to pursue this opportunity with television, we had to do something. And, you know, the day to day operations of the lab, we turned over to somebody who probably does a better job than I do. And what we've worked out is an arrangement where I focus on dealing directly with customers, which I think is one of my strengths, to get work in. The lab gets the work done, and all I do is make sure that the reports are written properly, that they're reviewed, and the work product goes out, and that we get paid. (laughs) And and that's worked out very well. So we streamline things so that I'm doing the things that I do well, and I have the support network to make sure that that work gets done. And when I'm on the road, I've got an understanding with the production company that I need a certain amount of time to handle work calls because there's a lot of downtime when you're shooting, setting up for shots, and I'm I'm waiting around. So it, it's actually worked out really well, and um, I'm thrilled. It's working out great.
1: That's that's brilliant. So you know, a couple of couple of takeaways out of that for you know that that I take on that is is for myself. It's really the same as the you know, the importance of having a. If you do have a significant other in your life of, of making right. that, making that person a part of a part of what you're doing and making sure that they're that they're invested in it as well, because that can be that can be the deal maker or the deal breaker.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And Janet comes on the road with us occasionally, and she's offered technical input um, and, and research to help uh, make connecting threads with with the shows. But there's one other thing that, that's important. You know, I have we have two kids uh, but they're grown adults, and, and my son is a, is an engineer, a structural engineer with a local firm here. He's, he'll be celebrating his second anniversary uh, as a working professional in October, and then my daughter is going to be a senior in college. But I told Janet, you know, I'm looking forward, I told her this years ago, I'm looking forward to life after kids. <laughs> we, we we get along great with our kids. We we love to see them every opportunity we can. But you know they're starting their own lives, and so we have more time to do these things. And that life after kids is now. And yep. you know to have this opportunity in television, and yet still have my my business. Um, I'm, we're very fortunate. I mean, really fortunate. And we're just going to hopefully it'll it'll continue for a while longer. And and we're just really. Happy and and uh, we know we know that we're stealing the money at this point. It's <laughs> we're, we're just re- very lucky. Uh, that's,
1: that's that's great. Well, Scott, I'm going to ask one one final question here before we move into the uh, closeout section of today's show, and that question is: is Is there one book out there other than your own <laughs> that you found to be extremely helpful in your professional and personal development?
2: Our house is a library. We're just buried in books, and I did. They just keep coming. You know, I, there really isn't a book. You know, in, in our world, I'm dealing with ACI manuals and uh, ASTM standards and things like that when I write my reports and answer questions to clients. But, you know, I, I guess the one book that really helped me understand aspects of the research that we're working on is written by somebody who is now a close personal friend. His name is Alan Butler, and he's a British researcher who's written all kinds of books. Alan wrote a book called The Goddess, the Grail, and the Lodge. It was a book that really helped me understand what's really going on in the world and historically what went on in the past and how it impacts right up to this day. Our founding fathers, Freemasonry, how intimately involved it is in, in the world and going back in time, and how all these things connect in a thread of human history going back thousands of years. So that book really had a profound impact. I don't know if it's for everybody, but uh, he's an amazing guy, and he's written a lot of books. So if you Google Alan Butler, you'll see a lot of good stuff there.
1: Well, Scott, we'll make sure that we get the uh, the book title and, and links to it into the uh, show notes for, for folks to go out there and look at it. You know, one of the things that for myself, personally and professionally, has been to not be really try to go out of my way to not be just unidimensional, you know, to to, to go out and look for things beyond just the professional aspects, right? And uh, and so, uh, if anything, I, I may I may have to tap into that book, especially living back over in Europe again now. Um, there's there's just an ample amount of history all around us, so it's uh that's a that's an amazing one. I appreciate you sharing that with us.
2: Well, and let me just say one thing: you're in Germany, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
2: If you read that book and or any of Alan's work or my work, you're going to read about a group of monks called the Cistercians. The Cistercians um, were led by a guy named Bernard de Clairvaux to become the most successful medieval mona- well, monastic order in history, period. They also founded a group called the Knights Templar. And if you study the Cistercians, you're going to learn some profound things that impact our world today. And in Germany was a place where they had a very strong presence. In fact, some of the key evidence that I found that, that helped me link the people that carved the runestone it came from Cistercian manuscripts in Germany. Oh, wow. And so I want to get over there and do some research in your backyard because there's some amazing stuff there. They had scriptoriums where all monks did all day, every day was copy down manuscripts, create different ciphers and codes, and many of these manuscripts have never been opened, let alone oh, wow. studied, in Germany.
1: If you're going to be coming this way, drop me a note. I'll make sure, if anything, to, uh, to buy you a beverage of choice.
2: Careful what you wish for, because <laughs> you might just get it.
1: <laughs> oh, that'd be, that'd be awesome. But thank that'd be you. Awesome. Definitely. Well, thank you, okay. thank you, Scott. And and yeah. now it's time to close up today's episode with our civil engineering career elevator advice. And, and Scott uh, is going to stick around. He's, he's, he's offered to stick around and and share one last piece of advice with all of you, an actionable piece of advice. And, and Scott, I'm going to ask you, what what's one thing that you would have done differently in your career? Or what's one of the best decisions that you made in your career and why?
2: You know, my, my career path took a huge... Turn with the death of my father um, when I right as I graduated I was graduating from college and we were on a trip together and we were diving and he drowned and it was just a horrible thing and I, I I don't mean to belabor that point but it really was a hard left turn in my in my career and in my life and so you know I, I had thought about maybe going back to school and pursuing you know higher degrees I mean that really. Wasn't in the cards. I had to go to work and help support my family, and it was a tough time. But it really changed the the course of my life. But in many ways, it was a good thing because uh, when I look back now, it led to the path that I'm on, and and it's a good path. I mean, I I miss my dad, but on the other hand, I think about all the wonderful times we had for those 22 years. He was a really great guy, and. But that was something, I'll be honest with you, if I could change anything, I'd change that. Yeah. Um, Wow. Because it would have created a different path. And who knows, I, I like to think I probably hopefully would have ended up doing the same things I did. But who knows? And as far as the choices I'm glad I made, I'm glad I chose to step away from my all day, every day running of the lab and pursuing this opportunity in television. I mean, to me, that's, That's the no-brainer because uh, as much as I enjoy my uh, forensic geology career, if I hadn't done this, I know what I would be doing until the day that I called it quits. So this was an unknown. It was a huge left turn in my career, but it's opened the door to new opportunities. And quite frankly, one of the reasons I did this was because I knew that I would have a platform to get information out to people that I would never otherwise have, to be able to touch literally millions of people with information uh, and history that they would otherwise not know about. So I'm really glad I did that, and I hope I'm going to have more opportunities in the future. And it's rare in life that you have an opportunity to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? and i 'm trying to do the best I can and let all the other stuff take care of itself, like you know money and attention and all that that 's not why i 'm doing this i 'm doing this to try to make a difference and um, I guess so far, so good and we 'll see how long that lasts so i'm i'm really glad I made that decision
1: well scott i 'm really glad that you made that decision as well, and uh, we've we've really enjoyed what we 've seen, and I'm looking forward to seeing more. Uh, here later this summer. Well, thanks a lot, Scott, for joining me on this show. This was uh, this was definitely a good one. It was a treat for me, and uh, and I really enjoy the, the great information that you were able to share with everyone. So please remember, everyone out there, that you can find show notes for this episode, a lot of the books and other interesting facts and uh, websites <coughs> that we've mentioned throughout today's show you can find those at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 12. Again, that's civilengineeringpodcast.com, episode number 12. And until next week, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering
0: endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. Bye.